Well, good morning. Why don't we give the band a massive round of applause? What a powerful time of worship. It is uh, such an honour and a joy to be able to share with you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. John chapter 3, verses 23, uh, 22 through 30. It'll be on the screen as well if you want to follow along. But how good were those testimonies last week of, of thankfulness? I was so encouraged to hear some of the stories of God's faithfulness and the gratitude that we can have for all that God's done. But yeah, John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. It says this, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John was also baptising at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can only receive what has been given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. I love that passage. I love that a little bit at the end as well. I recently um, heard about a new fear that I've never heard before. How many of you have ever heard of a fear called Jephyrophobia? Has anyone heard of Jephyrophobia before? Any no hands going up there? Basically, medically, it's defined like this. It's a very common fear, apparently, so don't, I'm not attacking you if I'm calling it out. I'm just, this is a very common fear. Jephyrophobia, medically defined as an abnormal and persistent Fear of crossing bridges. Anyone identify with Jephyrophobia? No, no, no hands going up. All right, oh, one at the back there. Okay, no worries, no worries. To be honest, as we um, as we examine um, the hist- as we look back at through history and the way we've tried to innovate as a society in civil engineering, we would find a lot of structural failures that would give us plenty of reason to experience Jephyrophobia. For example. In 1846, a new railway bridge was designed by the famous engineer Robert Stevenson, and it was opened over the Dee River in Chester. Has anyone ever been to the Dee River in Chester? The bridge was longer than previous bridges that he'd built, and so in his designs for this one, he tightened the designs, he'd reinforced certain parts so that it would reduce the movement that the bridge would have as the trains went over it. And so the bridge opened and it worked fantastically. A few months later, the designs of the bridge were being reviewed and they found that the tracks um, would vibrate as trains went across. They would vibrate a little bit up and down and side to side a little bit more than what they'd like. And so to address this, Robert Stevenson planned to pile the track with a bit more gravel and broken rocks to keep the tracks in place. 
On the morning of the 24th of May, 1847, six trains passed over the bridge that morning. They then closed the bridge in the afternoon so that the engineers could complete the the modifications. And then in the afternoon, they opened the bridge again. The first train that went across the newly opened bridge. The driver reported that as he was going across it, he felt like the bridge was moving beneath him. He he stepped on it, he tried to get across as quick as you can, but as you can imagine with steam trains back then, they weren't known for their acceleration, and he only just made it. I I say he only just made it because he made it. The engine carriage made it. But as he looked behind, the bridge had twisted to the side and the five carriages of cargo that he was carrying were dumped into the river below. After scratching their heads, engineers were trying to work out what had happened and they realised that the extra weight that they'd added had changed the mathematics in the bridge and they'd accidentally introduced uh, what's known as torsional instability. As best as I understand it, torsional instability is like an internal twist and an internal force that can cause a structure to sway and to twist and if left unaddressed, it can cause the structure to crumble to its destruction. You see, I find stories like this interesting because as we read through the Bible, we find many of the authors using architectural terms to describe our Christian journey. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus is our immovable foundation. Another example is in Jude, he tells us and encourages us to build each other up in in our most holy faith. Another place uh, in Peter, Peter paints this picture of us being like living stones, living bricks that are being put together to build something amazing of whom Jesus Christ is the architect. It's challenging because as we consider this metaphor of architecture, there comes with it some important principles. The idea of development and progression in our faith, brick by brick. The idea of intentionality. Commitment and dedication to the cause. But then there's also the idea of investment, the price that must be paid and the great cost that it is to the builder. You see, the Christian journey isn't easy. And we'll often come across moments in our life where we experience our own torsional instability. Moments of that internal twisting and tension where we wrestle with the, the fact of trying to follow Christ and let our lives line up with him. Moments where our submission and our surrender to God is testing. But as we look through that passage from John, I believe that there are some pillars of truth that can help us not crumble under the tension in times of tension, but strengthen us towards a surrendered heart and a life that honours God. First of all, consider that the surrendered heart redefines success. The 
passage begins at an interesting point. You've probably heard of John the Baptist before, but at this point in the story, uh, John is is very well known. He has a a massive following. He's been in the wilderness baptizing people, and the Bible describes people would receive from him what's called the baptism of repentance. People would recognize their sin, turn from it, and lay down their lives to God. Just down the road, though, Jesus has started his own baptism ministry. He's at the early stages of his public ministry, and people are also going to him. And it seems like we're at a point where the numbers are starting to tilt in Jesus's favor. But what John, the author, highlights is not whether who has the most, but it's that whether people are being baptized by Jesus or people are being baptized by John, there is lots of baptism going on and people are turning their lives to God. God is doing an amazing work in that countryside and yeah, God is at work. But now in 25, we see that all it's taken is for someone to to come to the disciples to create a moment of their own torsional instability, a moment where they come to them with a few um, to, to muddy the waters. Verse 25, it says this, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing, something insignificant when you consider all that God is doing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. There aren't too many details about what they were arguing about. But whatever was said, it caused the disciples to think that Jesus, because Jesus was attracting a bigger crowd, John's disciples and John the Baptist himself were maybe losing their edge a little bit, losing their fame, losing their influence, losing their impact. But John knew his mission wasn't compromised. It was the disciples, they were using the wrong metrics, the wrong definition of success. What about you? How would you define success for your life? Is it in gaining the numbers, the fame, the following? Is it in earning more, earning more money than anyone else? And I'm preaching to myself here because I'm guilty of this, but sometimes I feel we can get so caught up in our own individual lives and the coldness of like dead religion that sometimes we can become faithful to metrics and methods, but miss the master at work. The surrendered heart redefines success. I know I've shared parts of my story before, but after I came, uh, after I finished uni, I, um, God opened the door for me to, to start with this graduate scheme in the industry that I hoped for, and I was I was really excited. But it came with a ma- uh, a major drawback. There was four months of training in Leeds, unpaid. Four months of unpaid training in Leeds. To cut a long story short, I was getting up at 4.30 in the morning, getting home at 8.30 at night. The late night, a few weeks in, the late nights, the early starts, they were starting to get on top of me. The fact that I wasn't earning any money, it made me feel like a massive burden to my family. It was a really horrible time financially because, you know, they were supporting me through it and things like that. On top of that, the, the panic attacks started coming through to add to, to the pressure. It was a really difficult, horrible time but it was a blessed time 
a successful time. So in my mind, I was picturing that I would be, it was my time to start networking. It was my time that I thought I was going to start this amazing career. But God helped me to, to redefine success in those moments. I learned that in those moments as I was at my weakest, that's when Christ can become more fully my strength. I got to see God in a way that I'd never seen him before. I became totally dependent on his amazing grace, his limitless love, and his incredible mercy. God is the God who loves us. He is there for us. He is there in times of trouble. He is the one who helps us to soar on wings like eagles. You see, success in God's kingdom doesn't always look like what we expect. And it differs from season to season and person to person. It can be a painful truth at times, but if we truly want to build a surrendered heart before God, if we truly want to live live out success in God's eyes, I'm convinced that we'll sometimes be guided through rough seasons. It's not that God's mad at you. It's not that God's trying to punish you. But God uses these struggles and these testing times to refine us, to develop our character within us and increase our capacity to serve him. Paul chose to surrender, but it led him into prison and hardship. Yet he said this, he said, none of these things move me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of his grace. Daniel chose to surrender, but it led him into the lion's den. Joseph chose to surrender, but it led him into prison. And Jesus, our perfect example, chose to surrender. He, came, he said that he came to only to do the will of the one who sent him, but it led him to the cross. You see, I know many of us will be going some tough times, even right now, and I'm not even going to pretend to it be able to understand the pain and the struggles that some of us are going through. But as we consider God's faithfulness, as we consider his guidance through all these times, can I encourage you to take the resolve of Job. In Job 23.10 he says this, he says, But I know the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Isn't that a powerful testimony? When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. John's disciples had temporarily lost sight of the mission. Their, their, their success was based on numbers, but the surrendered heart redefines success. Following that, the surrendered heart lights the way. Look with me at verse 27 through 28. It says this, to, John, to this, John replied, a person can only receive what has been given to them. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. I am sent ahead of him. I love John's response because it is it's such a, um, a humble response. A, a response of gratitude, a response of contentment with what he has. 
grateful for what God had given him. He was also certain in his identity. He knew who he was and he knew who Jesus was. And understanding that, one commentator said, he could keep a proper perspective in place. Not to keep his proper place, not thinking too highly of himself that he was the Christ. And not thinking of himself too low that he had no place in God's plan. You see, whether you've heard this before or not, but God created you on purpose, for a purpose. You're knitted together in your mother's womb, the Bible describes, and God has an incredible purpose for your life. With this surrendered heart that John's built, it's no wonder Jesus speaks so highly of John the Baptist throughout the Gospels. In John 5.35, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. He says, he was a burning and shining light. A burning and shining light. I don't know about you, but how good would it be when we come to the end of our life, we stand before God and he says to us, you were a burning and shining light. The surrendered heart lights the way. You know, in, um, in ancient times before the, um, the magnetic compass was invented, um, there were a lot of different methods that sailors and pirates used to use to be able to nav- navigate through the seas. And one of the ways, um, one of the most effective ways was called celestial navigation. Sailors that would be able to determine their position and plot their course by studying the movement of the sun, the moon and the stars. For example, on a bright starry night, not only would the stars light up the sea, but because of the consistency in their patterns of movement, certain constellations would be able to tell sailors what direction was true north. And from there, they could work out what their position was and make any adjustments to their direction of travel. I love this picture because... Just two examples as I was thinking about this came to mind from scripture. First of all, in Jude, um, some, there are some false teachers that Jude points out. He calls them and he refers to them as wandering stars or shooting stars. We all know that shooting stars light up for just a moment before disappearing into the darkness, don't they? They have an irregular, sporadic movements which would be useless for sailors trying to um, plot their path and use them as a, as a position. And so that's what Jude is saying about these people that he was referring to. There is no consistency in their life and their faith that would allow people to be led to Jesus. Another example that came to mind was when we read about the star in the east that the kings followed. As the star made its way across the sky and the kings followed it, they were led straight to Jesus. See, John the Baptist was faithful with what God had given him. Faithful in his calling and that's why he became a bright and shining light what about us as believers if people were to use our lives for navigation where would they be led how can we be faithful with what God has given us see as I look around this room I can see lots of faces that I've seen be faithful bright shining stars not just in my life, but in the life of the church. People who've been consistent year after year, decade after decade, and people that can look to them as an example and be led to Jesus. It's like Paul, as he he writes in the Corinthians, he says, follow me as I follow 
Christ. There's a consistency. There's a faithfulness to the calling of God and the way we live our lives. Whatever opportunities you might see in front of you, Jesus puts it broadly like this. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The surrendered heart redefines success. The surrendered heart lights the way and the surrendered heart dies to self. Verse 29 says this, it says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Isn't that a great phrase for us as individuals on our faith journey? He must become greater and I must become less. You see, with John's, um, John the Baptist, we, we understand that he had an amazing knowledge of the Old Testament. So when he says that the bride belongs to the bridegroom, we have to assume that he's intentionally referencing back to the numerous passages we read in the Old Testament where where God's people are depicted as being the bride of Christ or bride of God. So as John speaks about Jesus being the groom, John is declaring that Jesus is no one other than Israel's Messiah. The King of Kings, the Rock of Ages, the creator of the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ. The friend who attends the bridegroom, I'm sure you can guess, is like the ancient equivalent of a best man. In that culture, the best man was responsible for organising so many of the preparations of the wedding ceremony um, and getting things ready. But even today, the best man, their greatest satisfaction is to see that all of the preparations, the ceremony, the parties, all go smoothly so that the bride and the groom can enjoy their day together. John makes it absolutely clear to his followers that he was never meant to be the one getting all the attention but the focus was always meant to be on Jesus, who wasn't just another baptizer, but he was the one who would deliver people for eternity. And as he considers who Jesus is, as he looks to be faithful with his calling, as he looks to prepare the way for Jesus, as he considers who Jesus is and all that Jesus would achieve in his life, death and resurrection... John says that the only logical response is that Jesus must become greater and he must become less. Paul says it like this in Romans 12, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. The surrendered heart dies to self. Surrender by definition is the giving up of one's person or possessions into the authority of another. Relinquishing all power ownership and control into the hands of God for his purpose and glory. Surrender is never forced upon us. 
It's, it's up to us to lay it down. We get to control how deep we go in our relationship with Christ. We get to control how surrendered we are to Jesus. In James, he says it like this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. John comes to this conclusion that he's not surrendering because, surrendering because Jesus is some supreme enemy. Rather, he is, it's not defeat because of a supreme enemy, but it's a victory in embracing the will of God and in recognising Jesus as Lord. And uh, when I was at um, my mum and dad's, they, they, they have a log burner at their house. Does anyone have a log burner? They are like the best things ever, especially in winter. So in the winter, when my dad would put the log burner on, we'd all gather around it. We'd all try and get the best spot, get the most heat. But sometimes what I used to do is I just used to grab a pillow, put it right next to the log burner and just try and have a little nap. And it's all nice and stuff. But then one time I remember, I don't know how long I was asleep for, but I woke up and I honestly felt like I was on fire. Like my, my top was, the, the plastic on my top, you know, the imagery was melting. My, ha- my face was raw red. I stood up, I felt like I needed to stop, drop and roll. I was absolutely burning. We don't get to decide whether, we get to decide whether we just want to be Warmed by the fire of people's faith, or take his invitation to know him for himself. Just because we feel the heat, it doesn't mean we're burning. See, I've come through times in my life where I've realised I've known all the songs, I've known all the hymns, but I've not known him, Jesus. Salvation is a free gift from God. We don't deserve it and we can never earn it. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. All we can do is receive it. But we're reminded time and time again that there is a cost to discipleship if we want to live a life to the full that God has called us to. Luke 14, Jesus tells his disciples this. In the height of Jesus' popularity, he declares this to the big crowds. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and consider the cost, whether he is enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And then he ends it by saying, so therefore anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's quite a challenging text, that, isn't it? quite uncomfortable to read sometimes and just as John said that he hears and responds to the uh, to, G, to Jesus's voice so God is calling out to us to respond today you say you might be watching online or you might be in church for the first time if you're hearing about Jesus and maybe you're feeling the nudge to surrender your life to him or maybe you're just wanting to learn more and find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We'd love to help you in that journey. We'd love to assist you in that as you're on your way out. If you pass the link, um, Angie's on the link and we've got a little pack of resources to give you to help you take your next step in your faith journey. We'd love to be a part of, of that. He must become greater and I must become less. The surrendered heart <clears throat> redefined. Uh, the surrendered heart dies to self, the band can come back up. 
as we bring this to a close. So as I was um, as I was preparing for for this, there was one prayer that was on my mind that I had to pray just as a recognition of saying, God, I know that I've got areas of my life that are need to surrender or resurrender and lay down. And it's a really simple prayer, and I'll invite you to pray it if you if you want to. But it's a bold prayer, just a few words, it's a, <clears throat> and I just simply prayed this: Lord, take the remaining years of my life and use them. For your glory. It doesn't matter what age you are to to pray that. But it is a bold prayer. It's a a dangerous prayer. But if you want to pray that just in the quietness of your own heart, why don't you do that just now? I'm not going to ask for hands raised or anything like that. Lord, take the remaining years of my life and use them for your glory. Just between you and God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, God, for who you are. Lord, we know that you are good, that your love endures forever, and that your faithfulness continues through all generations. We thank you for your word as we look to align our hearts with yours. God, we recognize our absolute dependence on you and our hope and trust is completely on in you. God, we ask you for, to, for you to stir our hearts afresh once again. Give us a fresh fire, a fresh passion to see your kingdom come and your will be done. So we pray for the grace, Lord, to help us to run our race well. The strength to fight the good fight and the perseverance to keep the faith. So that together, as a family of believers, we can show the world that the greatest victory in life is a life surrendered to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.